the survival guide to life a podcast about how to win in life every second physically mentally spiritually financially consistently how's it going everyone we got another episode of a uh, survival guide to life and this episode we have one of the most uh, amazing survival stories for you and it is with Michael Hingson and I don't want to spoil anything or uh, burst the surprise but this is a, a story that is one of a kind and unique and that I think everybody should hear so um, we'll get right into it uh, Michael, if you can start off and just a brief summary or, uh, you know, a, a, like a brief autobiography about yourself before we start. Sure. Um, well, and I thank you for inviting me to be on Survival Guide to Life. Um, I'm looking forward to today. I've been looking forward to it for a while and um, really appreciate the honor of being on the on the podcast. So... Part of my story uh, and what makes it a little bit unique from most people is that I happen to be blind. I have been blind my entire life. I was born in Chicago um, in 1950, actually, and uh, lived there for five years. And the the doctors told my parents that that I wasn't going to be able to ever contribute to society when they discovered that I was blind. And my parents said, well, of course he is. And they, the doctor said, you should send him somewhere where they can care for him because he can't do anything. And my parents said, you guys are wrong. I'm, we're gonna raise him to be a, a normal kid or, or at least a kid who can do whatever he chooses just like anyone else. And they did. And so I grew up with an attitude that basically said that I could do whatever I chose to do and it didn't really matter that I was blind might not be able to do things the same way. There could be frustrations that I would have to deal with, but that in fact, I could do whatever I chose with my life. We moved out of Chicago when I was five and we moved to Southern California. While I was in Chicago still, my parents worked with some of the people in the Department of Education and actually there were a number of other blind kids uh, in the area at the time, and my parents and others got the Department of Education in Chicago to create a, a kindergarten class for these blind kids. And so I had that, and I learned, I learned to Braille, at least a little bit of Braille, and did some other things while I was there. But then when I moved to California, we didn't have anything, no classes, no Braille, no anything. And so Mostly when I went to school, there wasn't a lot for me to do other than listen to the teachers, which I did. And when other students were taking tests, the teachers would ask me questions and I would answer them. And we, we made sure that we were in a, a part of the room away from most all the students so they couldn't hear what, what we were saying and we spoke silently. The only time that didn't happen is when I did spelling tests, you know, when you're a kid and they teach you spelling, they give you words and you have to learn to spell them. And every Friday, what the kids would do is they would come into the classroom and the teacher would say a word and everyone had to write down 
how to spell that word and they would have 10 or 20 words and then at the end everyone exchanged their papers and the teacher would write the correct spelling on the board on the blackboard because we had chalkboards back in those days that didn't work with me <clears throat> instead of writing them on the chalkboard i had to tell the class and the teacher how to spell the words i'm sure she also if i recall right wrote them on the board based on how i spelled them but i had to make sure i really did it right no pressure but i had to make sure i did it right so that um, i wasn't embarrassed when there was a wrong spelling one time i think i missed a word if i recall right but mostly i, I did pretty well anyway i went to school went to a public school and when i went into fourth grade finally the school district where we lived in palmdale hired a teacher because again there were appearing more blind students there were about four or five i believe and so we had a special resource class or special times with this teacher who knew braille so i learned or relearned braille uh, the teacher worked to get appropriate textbooks in braille when possible and so on and so it integrated me a little bit more into the classroom and we did that basically through high school <clears throat> To, to offer a suggestion for people who want to learn more about that. We've written a book about my life and what you're gonna learn about later in this podcast. The book is called Thunderdog, the story of a blind man, his guide dog and the triumph of trust. It was a number one New York Times bestseller and it's available wherever books are sold. It's published by originally Thomas Nelson that was absorbed into HarperCollins. So it's published by HarperCollins and you can get it wherever you can get books. It's available in audio as well from audible.com and it's available for, for people to get. So I hope you'll get the book and that you enjoy it. But I went on to college, same attitude, and I graduated from college and I had a few jobs in um, the, the technology field. My first job was actually working with an organization that I was a part of, the National Federation of the Blind. The Federation had been approached by Dr. Raymond Kurzweil, who had invented the ability to teach a computer how to read any set of type styles and it didn't matter what they were. It's a, a process called Omnifont Optical Character Recognition. His software didn't care what the, the typed or printed style was. And back in the 1970s, that was unheard of, but he had developed it. And so the result was that when he developed it, he wanted his first practical use of the technology to be making it possible for blind people to read. So I was hired to work on a project with the National Federation of the Blind and Ray in order to make sure that the best possible reading machine was produced. And the way we did that was we took several of the machines from Ray's laboratory, the initial prototypes, and put them in places where blind people would have access to them around the country. And from that, people could use the machines. We got a lot of good input over 18 months and all of that went into the final first production model of the machine that Ray developed and began selling in 1979. I went to work for Ray and through some circumstances, um, my job functions changed with Ray. My original job was doing the same kind of human factors work that I had done while working for the National Federation of the Blind. But then after a few months, I was called into the office of the director of marketing, actually was vice president of marketing, and I was told that they were laying me off because 
I wasn't a revenue producer for the company directly, and the problem was that they had hired way too many people. Happens to a lot of engineering companies, as I've learned over the years. So they had to lay me off because I wasn't a revenue producer, and then there was this little tiny pause, and then the VP of marketing said, unless you want to go into sales. Now, my master's degree, which I got from the University of California at Irvine, was in physics. I was a physics guy, a science guy, and dealt with science things, not sales things. But the competing issue there <clears throat> was that I knew that the unemployment rate among employable blind people was very high. The National Federation of the Blind was formed because people really didn't know a lot about blindness and blind people. And one of the results of that was that people wouldn't hire blind people to do things because not that they were blind, but because people thought that since they were blind, they couldn't perform and do the same things that everybody else did. And so we didn't get the same opportunity to be hired to do jobs that everyone else did. Well, so for me, when I was given this situation of either I could be laid off or go into sales, it was kind of a no-brainer to say, all right, I'll go into sales. I figured I could learn how to sell as well as the next person. And I, I took a Dale Carnegie sales course and spent 10 weeks learning how to sell and began selling for Kurzweil and was successful at that until Xerox bought the company and then laid off all the pre-Xerox takeover salespeople. <clears throat> then I had to go to look for a job and couldn't find one. By that time, it was now 1984, I had been married for two years, and um, I knew that they were probably going to lay me off or that there were going to be job issues. So I had started actually looking at the idea of searching for another job. I was laid off at the end of June of 1984 and couldn't find a job. I wrote many, many letters and sent out many, many resumes. If I didn't say I was blind, I might be brought in for a job interview. If I did say I was blind, I never heard back from companies because they didn't want to hire a blind person. The feeling was blind people couldn't do work. Where's my proof of that? If I didn't say I was blind, as I said, I sometimes got called into interviews. I remember we were living in Southern California and I had a job opportunity or a job interview that came my way and I went to the interview. It was on a Saturday. And when I got to the interview, the first thing the, the um, director of sales, I think it was, said to me was, well, but you're blind. How are you going to sell? I said, have you looked at my resume? Well, yeah, but how are you going to sell? I said, I did sell for six years. I overachieved goal. I can sell. I know how to do it. And you have a product. And I had done some research on the product and discussed selling it. And he said, well, all that's really good. But even if you could sell, how are you going to get to work every day? I said, I got here, didn't I? I didn't, I didn't have someone bring me to your office. You don't see anyone here, do you? I came because I wanted to demonstrate to you that I'm perfectly capable of getting here on my own every single day. That's what I do just like anyone else has to do. It didn't matter. I didn't get the interview. And I had other issues like that. So eventually, Whoa. so eventually, the only way I could do something and be successful and, and have a job was what I had to do was and did start my own company. 
I had to start my own company in order to be able to just have an income and have a job. And so I did. So if you're going to talk about survival, um, I had to survive. I had to uh, have an income to be able to pay the bills. And my, my wife worked, but her income wasn't going to support both of us. So if you will, it was a matter of survival. I had to find a way to do it. And my way of surviving eventually was starting my own company. And the company I began with a few others was to sell computer-aided design or CAD systems to architects. CAD systems are the software packages that people can use to create houses or create products or create designs on a computer and then um, create the same kinds of drawings that you would normally create on a drawing table if you were an architect. But you could do it on a computer a lot less expensive, a lot faster, but architects figured out very quickly that if they did it on a computer and learn how to do that, they could charge the same prices and it only cost them a fraction of the cost that it did to spend all the time to draw it on a, a drawing table. So we sold those products. As a blind person, it's the most graphic thing in the world, but I didn't need to work the machine. What I learned is how to work the machine so I could describe it. Great for selling. I did it for four years and then we sold the company and I went back to looking for a job again. I thought I ought to be able to find something. One day, and this again gets back to talking about the whole concept of survival. <clears throat> One day we were looking in the newspaper, my wife and I, and she said, here's a great job. And she read the description and it sounded wonderful. And I said, I'm gonna go apply. Um, we had now been married eight years, seven years. And um, she said to me, great, that sounds exciting. And I said, well, I've got one question. You know, it's the usual thing that comes up. Do I say I'm blind when I write the cover letter for the resume or do I not? And she said, as only wives can do, you're a dummy. And I said, why? And she said, what did you say is the most important thing that you ever learned from the Dale Carnegie sales course? And um, I said, well, you know, I'm not quite sure which one you're thinking of because I thought that there were a lot of things that were important. And she said, you always have said to the salespeople that you hired and that you worked with and the salespeople that you managed because I held positions in sales management for Kurzweil's company. And of course, I was the president of my own company that we founded. <clears throat> she said, the most important thing that you said you ever learned was that any salesperson should recognize how to turn perceived liabilities into assets. And I think that's one of the most important things that I can ever tell and teach people, turn perceived liabilities into assets. And this little light went off over my head as it happens in the cartoons and I went and wrote a cover letter. And the last two paragraphs of the cover letter went something like this. When you hire me, you need to be aware that the most important thing about me is that I happen to be blind. Because as a blind person, I have had to sell all of my life just to survive. I have had to sell to convince people to let me buy a house, to take my guide dog on an airplane, to take my guide dog into grocery stores. Because I've been using a guide dog for a number of years by then. I was on my third dog when I wrote this letter. And I've had to sell 
just to convince people that as a blind person, I was as safe as anyone else at being able to do a job. So when you hire me and when you're considering a person for this sales job, do you want to hire someone who just comes in for eight or 10 hours a day and then goes home and because it's just a job? Or do you want to hire someone who truly understands that sales is a science and an art and that for me, selling is a way of life 24 hours a day? Out of that letter, I got uh, an invite to come in for an interview because clearly they knew I was blind, but they were very taken by that letter. Um, so I came in for the interview and I got the job and then um, had the job and, and moved on from there. So that's kind of a, a biography that brings you up into the 1990s. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty thrilled as well as happy as uh, your sales background because that's what I did my whole life. And to this day, I'm still in sales. I, I love it a lot. A lot of people don't like it, but um, I think that it's 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 for the few who can do it. But the people who can do it, like you said, it's it's an art and it's a science that uh, has to be learned and uh, be implemented in a certain way. What do you sell? Okay, so I went from many different things. And uh, currently now um, is two, I'm a real estate broker first. And second, I'm in the energy market. So I deal with solar energy, solar panels, and like um, this started this new program. So it's for the ability of people as well as businesses who are in apartment buildings. Now, if you're in an apartment building, there's no way you could get solar panels, right? Because you'd have to talk to your landlord and there'd be all these things and you might be moving in a year. So what would you do? Now they've come up with this thing called a solar farm. So they allocate a land and they have the panels there. And then part of that panel is to you. And then whatever energy is derived from that panel then gets sh uh, shout out and put to you. So you can get the benefits of the solar panels and save money, but without having to have it on your uh, home or house. Cool. So, so I believe that that I have had to sell, as I said, for all the reasons that I mentioned. People don't think blind people can do stuff. And it's not that we can't, it's that people think we can't. We're a, what would be considered a low incidence disability. And in fact, um, the result of that is that a lot of people don't pay attention to blind people or we're just plain written off because people think eyesight is the only game in town. But as I love to say, if you really consider technology, let's go back and look at the electric light bulb that Thomas Edison and others developed in the 1850s and 1860s. If we were to define the light bulb in terms of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the light bulb would be defined as a reasonable accommodation for light dependent people who can't function in the dark, which is most all of you. And I firmly believe that you have every bit as much a disability, so-called, as I do. The only thing is that technology, because there's so more of you than me, 
technology was developed much earlier to overcome your disability. And there is no way that anyone can say not being able to see in the dark is not a disability when it happens. So you try to eliminate darkness by having lights all the time that you need them and so on, and that's fine. But also recognize that there are other technologies that would make it possible for those of us who don't happen to be light dependent and who do happen to have some challenges not using the visual technology that you have available, that there ought to be some inclusion on your part to make it as possible for us to have access to things as well. And, um, and that's what this is really all about. And that's what, what my story is about. It isn't that I can't see with my eyes. It's more that you can't see with anything but your eyes. And that's what we experience all the time. So um, just going through, you know, life and having to deal with, you know, finding a job or, you know, trying to prove yourself or, you know, trying to like validate yourself when you didn't need to, like, how was your mindset? And like, I'm, I'm sure resiliency was something you had to develop, but like, how did you not give up? You know, how did you just remain in the game and like, you know, just pull through? It's, it is a mindset. Um, and it's a mindset that we need to deal with today. We should talk about that. But the, the fact of the matter is that I lived in a world that said I was different and I was less than most people. And I chose to not accept that. I chose to believe that those who were less were the ones who couldn't see beyond their eyes to recognize that there are a lot of other gifts that make people what they are. And today we're, we're experiencing a lot of challenges with that because we particularly here live in a country where now we're being affected by this pandemic. And on the one hand, some of our political leaders are saying, well, we just got to get back to normal. And they're not wise enough to recognize normal will never be the same again. On September 11th, there, 2001, there was an event. And I remember people saying after that, we've got to get back to normal as soon as we can. And I kind of always reacted to that until I realized, again, normal will never be the same again. The world changed on September 11th, and the pandemic, in one way or another, is also going to change the world. And we're still going through that. The people who will adjust most to that are the people who are, will recognize that normal isn't going to be the same ever again. And while they can't necessarily be part of the specific group that can change that normal and have control over making resources available, defining where normal might go. Everyone has control over their own minds. We, as I say, need to learn to worry about what we can't, excuse me, we need to learn about what, learn about 
and deal with what we can control and not worry about the things that we cannot control. That will help anyone have a much better chance of surviving and thriving and going through this pandemic that we're facing. And yes, unfortunately, uh, it might include the fact that incomes get threatened and incomes become less than they were. And people then have to decide how they're going to deal with that. But they have control over not panicking or panicking. They have control over just choosing to be afraid and live their lives in fear because they feel that they've lost all control in their lives. Or they can choose to recognize that they can control that fear and they can use their concerns to drive their own mindset to explore what can I do so that I have access to income or I have access to whatever I need that I didn't have access to before while accepting the fact that I might not be able to do it just the same way I used to do. Um, we watch, my wife and I, oftentimes uh, a show Restaurant Impossible with Robert Irvine. And on his shows lately, he has been talking to restaurants that he had been to before and helped save because they were doing things that were driving the restaurants out of business. He helped them move on, but now with COVID-19, once again, some of these restaurants are in trouble <clears throat> because what they, um, the owners have not done is to, without help, step back and recognize maybe we need to look at doing things differently than we used to. And we need to look at what it is that is necessary to make our restaurant function in a virus environment, how we can overcome that. The information is available to us, but so many people live in fear and haven't learned in their own lives to step out of what's their normal comfort zone to explore alternatives. And very frankly, one of the things I am beginning to do is to develop a, a coaching program to help people to learn to control their fears. So we're pretty early in that process, but if people visit my website, um, michaelhingson.com, as we develop it, they will see that, um, that we're setting this up. And, and that's one of the ways that I'm going to be dealing with um, overcoming fear or controlling fear or being able to live through a change. The pandemic in one sense is no different than September 11th. It was a change and it was a pretty sudden change. September 11th was a sudden change. And we have survived and can survive through those kinds of things, but we need to learn to step back and, and enhance our own imagination and our own lives. And those are some of the things that I'm going to be developing some coaching programs and uh, developing some mechanisms to be able to interact with people to help them um, deal with those issues. Now, Michael, I think that is the best thing and the most effective thing that you have in as a plan and you're going to do. Um, it's also come up in my own mind where I think like, you know, coaching or just trying to 
showed someone this mindset and like or just show someone how they can perceive things and i see it a lot with my own like sphere of influence or my the people around me that you know they kind of bring themselves into such a situation because they're always so down or they're always just thinking negative like if you if you can just have conviction that like you know because what i tell them is you know life isn't smooth sailing it's not always going to be win 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 rather it's like a, a twist and turn of you know ups and downs ups and downs and then you know success and that if you don't see yourself ever coming out of it you're not going to come out of it you know like uh it, it, but if you think that you can it will and to remember that fear like a good definition i have is false evidence appearing real you know so just re remember that anything you fear is just false evidence appearing real and then do the thing you fear and the death of that fear is near we were put on this earth with the ability to choose we were given free will i think we need to understand what free will is and what choice is about uh, and i think there are basic laws in the universe if you will that that deal with that you know i hear a lot of people saying today well wearing a mask and requiring me to wear a mask infringes on my freedom no it doesn't it never has it never will um, our constitution was set up and established in part as it says right in the preamble to the constitution to promote the general welfare and the fact of the matter is as we know from all of the medical science and all of the information that is provided to us that wearing masks is much more for the protection of others than ourselves because if we happen to have the virus, wearing a mask <clears throat> much greatly, much greater prevents droplets that contain the virus from going into the faces or um, into other people. So wearing masks is as much or absolutely more for other people's protection than our own. Certainly it helps us too, but we, in this country especially because of the way our government has always been structured have the moral and ethical and legal obligation to promote the welfare of others so it's not an infringement of freedom to be required to wear a mask it's common sense what we what we do need to do in stepping back and looking at what we need to do in our own lives to be successful and to move on also in part means looking at all the evidence around us of of whatever there is and then forming our own opinions based on real evidence not what people say is real evidence because there are a lot of people for example on facebook who spew out a lot of stuff but they don't demonstrate that they got their information from any real relevant source. So we need to look at sources to get the information that will help us make wise decisions. There's nothing new there. 
that's been around all the time, but now it becomes more relevant than ever. And, and um, I have mentioned several times September 11th. Let's be real clear. I was on the 78th floor of Tower One of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, working for a computer company. I was the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager. And I was in my office with a colleague, David Frank, who had come in the night before. And we had guests in our office because we were going to be conducting some training sessions to teach our reseller partners how to sell our product. The airplane hit the building. None of us knew what happened. We felt the effects of the airplane hitting the building. My colleague David looked out the window and saw fire above us. The building actually tipped. Very tall buildings are flexible. So as I'm tipping my arm now, that's what the building did. And then it came back. Um, a lot of people have said, well, of course, you didn't know what happened because you couldn't see it. Let me be clear. The building hit, um, our, the, the tower was struck by the airplane, our tower, Tower 1, on about the 96th floor on the north side of the building. I was on the south side of the building on the 78th floor. So I was 18 floors below where the plane hit and on the other side of the building. The last time I checked, the only person who had x-ray vision was Superman, and that was a comic. Uh, in a comic book and it wasn't real. The fact of the matter is none of us knew. But what I was um, different about and the reason I was a little bit different than most everyone else is that having been in that tower for quite a while, I had made the choice to learn emergency evacuation procedures, to learn where the exits were, to learn what to do. I also spent a lot of time just walking around the World Trade Center so that I knew the complex. People say it has a big, massive set of buildings and it was very complicated. You know, it wasn't. <laughs> it's a lot less complicated than a number of places where I've been. Uh, it really wasn't that hard to get around if you spent some time doing it. And I felt as a manager in the World Trade Center that I needed to know what to do to get around the building and I needed to have in my own mind a map as well as all the information I could get about what to do in an emergency. And most every day I went into the tower, I remember sort of thinking to myself, if there's an emergency today, is there anything that I don't know or what do, what do I do if there's an emergency today? And I developed a mindset that said, you know what to do if there's an emergency. And when it actually did happen, that mindset kicked in. Most people don't do that. They rely on science to tell them where the exits are because they don't learn the information. Knowledge is extremely important. Opinion can be important, but more relevant than anything is knowledge. And that's going to be part of the basis of what I discuss with coaching groups and clients as we go forward. Not opinion, but really getting the knowledge and then incorporating it into your mindset so that you can be as focused as possible. Was I afraid on September 11th? You bet. We figured out an airplane hit the building because as we were going down the stairs, we smelled the fumes from burning jet fuel. And I knew what that smell was like because I'd been to lots of airports. I was around a bunch of people when I um, realized that I was smelling burning jet fuel. And I said to them, I'm smelling the fumes from burning jet fuel. We must have been hit by an airplane. And other people said, yeah, you're right. We were trying to figure out what that was. But we didn't know. 
one of the reasons I remained calm um, so well was that I also had my guide dog, Roselle, with me, and that's the, the dog you see in the picture back here. Roselle was my fifth dog. Roselle was afraid of thunder, but exhibited no fear at all on September 11th. So as we know, dogs tend to sense things far more quickly and from a greater distance than we do. But Roselle was not exhibiting any kind of fear, which told me that whatever was going on wasn't bothering her. And when we figured out an airplane hit the building, we knew one did, but we didn't know any of the details and we didn't know it all the way down the stairs. But I, but I knew an airplane must have hit the building. But I was able to recognize that, okay, I didn't have any control over that happening. And the only thing that I could do was to go down these stairs and help other people go down. And there were times that we had to assist others, but go down these stairs and help others so that they don't panic either. And that's what I chose to do. It was a mindset choice. So was I afraid? You bet. But I had learned to focus that concern and fear, and I had learned to control my fear. Later, we were outside, actually about 100 yards away from Tower 2, and remember the Twin Towers were 400 yards tall. I was 100 yards away when Tower 2 collapsed. I was worried as much there as anything else. And I even remember I said, God, I can't believe that you got us out of a building just to have it fall on us. But I also knew that panicking wasn't going to help. And in fact, as if you read Thunderdog, you will, you will read something in the book um, and I'll tell the story. When I said, God, I can't believe that you got us out of a building just to have it fall on us, as soon as I thought that, I heard in my head a voice that said, as clearly as you're hearing me now, don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on running with Roselle and the rest will take care of itself. And I had this sense of absolute certainty that if we worked together, we'd be okay. Um, so the the religious folks would say, well, so... God was talking to you? Yes, absolutely. I believe that. Um, I've been uh, a believer in God my entire life. But I also believe that I was open to hearing that because I was already doing my best to focus. If that building decided to come down or if it had come down a different way than it did and collapsed on me, there was nothing I was going to be able to do about it. So the important thing for me to do was to focus as much as possible on running away from the collapsing tower and working with my guide dog, Roselle, to do that. And that's what we did do. It goes back to mindset. And I think that's the important thing that we need to deal with um, today is changing our mindset and recognizing that we don't have to be afraid of everything we can make the choice to survive and to move on from unexpected things. Does it mean that um, if one of us takes everything that I've said to heart, that we might not, that we might still get the, the virus, that somebody could get the virus? Sure, anything is possible. But we can improve our odds, each of us, if we work on our own mindsets. and. 
that, as I said, is kind of what I'm going to be working toward doing. I think that's what's a necessity in everyone, especially with what's going on right now in the pandemic and, you know, these trying times. But it, I think just with my own experiences and like the close circle around me, it's something that uh, I think that you and your team are probably uh, developing on how to implement this, but how to take someone from a fixed mindset and have them transition into a growth mindset. I, I think it's, um, there needs to be a, like an effective way in helping people to make that transition and uh, doing it with certainty and full conviction. I think you're right. And, and I will just say to you now that once we are further along in the process, I want to interview you and hear your story because clearly you've got a reason for doing what you're doing, but we can do that another day. Okay, I, I would love to. But I think that it's important that we recognize that we have a lot more control over our lives than we think we do. Uh, we have control over them because no one can really tell us how to think and no one can tell us that we have to think a certain way. We have to make those choices ourselves. And um, it's unfortunate that we have several factors going on in our lives in this country today. We have the pandemic. We have, very frankly, a president who goes against what all of the scientists say, but goes against standard concepts of human nature and is, is transmitting messages that are very scary. And there is a, a lot of opportunity for us to understand that much of what comes through the media in general, uh, what comes from political leaders who are not taking the initiative to develop their own good, positive, strong mindsets, doesn't need to be what affects us in the long run. And of course, as I tell everyone, the reality is come November, that's when you do have control over what happens to you in the next several years. If you truly have stepped back and looked at what is going on in our world today and feel that there needs to be a change. Make that decision intelligently. Don't, don't just do it emotionally without thinking about it. And if people do that and decide to, to make a change, then, then they will. But that's an individual choice, but it should be done with real evidence, not just opinion. I think it's just because we've like become such a media like friendly or you know like we we base most our um you know our knowledge or base our like mindset or our thinking on like what's going on around us that it's like what you said we don't distinguish what's truth or false Rather, we take the first information we see, oh, it must be on channel so-and-so, so it has to be correct. 
and using that as like a basis for everything and i think you know like i always say this a lot and i iterate this a lot but like we may have made all these like you know technolo technological advances and you know come come a far way from you know thomas edison and the first light bulb to now but i feel like we have sort of devolved as human beings as in we cannot like you know before it was like teach a man uh, uh, give a man a fish feed him for a day teach a man a fish feed him for life nowadays if you even try to teach a man a fish he wouldn't even want to do it you know he'd rather just sit on his back and use his phone to get some food than do anything and i feel like if we can kind of like put an outskirt or like like not pay attention to this media all, all this people telling us how to think and we can think for ourselves and like people like you who can slowly develop you know um, groups then there'll be more ambassadors who can change this ideology i i've made some pretty strong statements like blindness isn't the problem it's our attitudes about blindness that's that's the problem um, and I would love people just to believe me. Uh, I believe that I have developed those attitudes not just because of opinions, but I can back them up with evidence, not only 70 years of my own life experience, but so many other life experiences. And I can I can back them up with science. I can back them up with every kind of objective sort of thing that one can imagine. And because I can do that, I believe that what I say is more than just an opinion. And I think that's what's really important. And I think that no matter who we are or no matter who we listen to, we need to make sure in our own minds that we have truly analyzed it. And that, that comes from the physics in me, right? I mean, having gotten a master's degree, having gone to college and learned to analyze and learn to focus and learn to pay attention to details, even if I didn't ever use to a great degree all the physics that I learned, the concepts of doing things in a methodical, if you will, scientific way to to learn how to focus what I think and how I think, that's pretty important. And so I'm saying blind people can perform and do the same things that everyone else can do. It doesn't necessarily require eyesight. Yes, there are some technologies that we have or that we may develop in the future that will enhance our opportunities to do certain things. But it's not blindness that's the problem. It is either addressing creatively other issues or um, it is a matter of focusing on what's important to, to learn how to do whatever needs to be done. But eyesight's not the problem. And the, the fact of the matter is I think the biggest disability or the biggest challenge that people with eyesight have is that they are locked into one mode of doing things and that is using your eyes. The people who truly learn to use all of their senses and 
volitionally learn to use all of their senses and learn to use and, and gain information from all of those senses will uh, be much better for it. I am amazed today that so many vehicles are being produced, so many cars with touchscreen, as opposed to, I think we're starting to see a little change in this, but as opposed to using full voice input to do things. Um, touch screens mean you got to look at the screen and take your eyes off the road. Um, of course, some people would say the solution to that is have autonomous vehicles, and um, there'll be there'll be room for that. But we should learn to use more than just our eyes collectively as a society to do things. It will be much better for all of us, and um, and and hopefully those kinds of things will happen. I went to a webinar yesterday and couldn't do anything with the webinar because the software people who created the product that they used did not in any way include um, access for people who couldn't see the screen. Everything was graphic. It would have been dead trivial to make their product fully accessible right from the outset. But it's partly a lack of education that caused them not to. But today they got their product and they don't exhibit any interest in fixing the problem. And that's unfortunate. So, you know, we all have our challenges and things to deal with. No, I, um, you're completely 150% right. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick note. I think because um, we're going on an hour, it, the meeting might end, but if it does, we'll just come back into it and start recording again. But I just wanted to throw that out there end. in case it does. It won't okay. end. Okay. Right. We're good. So then, having then, set up uh, the Zoom meeting, yeah. I know it won't end. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. So then, um, what I wanted to go into is two different things. Was if you look in, like you know, a lot of people like superheroes and things like that. If you look at the superhero Daredevil, he wasn't able to see, but at a young age, what did he do? He utilized every other sense. He made sure he can pay attention to his hearing or to, you know, the smell or his touch. And then just recently they they have, you know, I randomly caught my sister watching it. And I just watched a little bit of it. It's a, a TV show called Psych. And he's mm -hmm. a, a private detective. And the, But his dad was a police officer. And from a young age, he made it important for him to learn how to use his other senses where he blindfolded him and he said okay what can you hear what what you know what do you remember around you and like you're so many people are just focused on like you know okay let's teach the masses let's do this that you have to allocate for everyone and you can't because Look, if if we compare it, Michael, you know, uh, you know, God, God bless you have like a very successful and impressive history and background of achievement. Now, if we take you compared to say someone who could see, and then maybe they haven't had barely anything. So that in itself should go to show you that being blind has nothing to do with what you can achieve. It all depends, like you said on your mindset. We all face challenges and that's understandable. 
and the issue isn't the challenge, it is how we face it. The issue isn't what it does to us, what the challenge does to us. Rather, it's an issue of how we decide to let the challenge affect us. That's the real issue. Um, and that's that's something that we all just have to deal with. And And so my hope is that I can encourage people to become more creative, a little bit more focused, but most of all, more calm and not so panicked just because things don't go exactly the way we want. So we'll we'll work at it and that's kind of what my plan is going forward and I'm really excited about the opportunities that I have to to teach people to perhaps be a little bit better at surviving if nothing else inside their own minds. So you know um, Michael just like you said you're surviving in your own mind like how how from like a young age and a young boy and like I, I I'm sure like you know growing up you've had to face different types of situations as in We lost your audio. So I'm not hearing you at the moment. Somehow we lost audio again. So I'm going to pause the recording. So okay, go ahead. All right, my my question is that you know, from a young age to now, I, I'm sure you've been trialed or you've just had to like battle within your head, just like the to keep going or to like not give up. And was there a certain mantra or like certain like? inspiration or something along those lines that you know kept kept the fire going and like kept you pushing or was it just your own drive for success and your your own ambition i am certainly positive about the fact that my parents had a lot to do with it um, my dad especially we had a lot of talks and conversations about god about life about the fact that I was blind, and and he said that I would be able to make my own decisions about what I did with my life, and it didn't matter that I couldn't see. And there were times that people told me that, well, you're blind, you can't do stuff. I discovered one day when I was in college a letter in my um, student record that was from a physics professor who said that no blind person could ever absorb the material necessary to get an advanced degree in physics. There is no evidence in the world that demonstrates that simply because a person doesn't have eyesight, 
that they cannot absorb material. Eyesight is not the only game in town. It never has been, it never will be. Um, and I'm not knocking eyesight, but don't decide that that's the only way to do stuff. My parents had a lot to do with shaping my attitude of being able to do what I want. Uh, my wife does the same thing. She She's very encouraging. And by the way, she happens to also be a person who has one of these, according to most people, so-called disabilities. She's in a wheelchair. She's been in a chair her whole life. Um, but she also learned that she can do many things that people said she couldn't do. She can choose what to do with her life and does and has and will continue to do that. So I, I think that um, there's also a part of it that comes from within me having a, a, a mind that accepts those kinds of positive attitudes. Uh, yeah, sure, things have come along that have been very frustrating and very disheartening, but eventually recognize that you can move on and be successful and do things. You know, it's for anyone who is listening, I could say it's an inspir inspiration or it is like more drive and, you know, it gives you more reason to, you know, I may have all these things and all these, like, you know, a lot of people do not, or I feel like they're not grateful or they don't practice enough gratitude and they're always looking at what they don't have. But I always say, you know, don't ever compare yourself to someone who has more than you. Always compare yourself to someone who's less than you. And they don't appreciate all these facets they have. And maybe like, you you know, like eyesight isn't as important, but it definitely does make things a, lot, a little easier. And that just having that appreciation alone, you... you should be enough drive for you to you know go and do something i one thing i cannot understand is someone who just stays in the same place or they're in the same space and they're like you know why am i still here so why um is it that viewing someone without eyesight is someone who has less than you no, no, I'm not saying. No, no, no. I'm just saying in general. That's a that's a a general rhetorical question. Okay, so I wouldn't say like that in 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 that aspect when I said someone who is less than you, because a lot of people compare themselves to people who have like oh more no, I know cars or more houses. Oh, I understand, but I'm yeah. I'm saying so. Go back to that to that point though. Most yeah. people would say that without eyesight, you're obviously less than I. Why? I that's just perceived. I wouldn't say that. In, in in my in my opinion, I wouldn't say someone who has eyesight is less than because they by them not having eyesight could actually cause them to have more hunger for achieving things, and then in they might they, or will be achieve more than me. So that actually was a means of them being more uh, you know better than me. Well, I I think you answered it. It's it's a perception, yeah. and um. The, the fact of the matter is, I believe that everyone on this planet has gifts, and we don't all have the same gifts. And when we mitigate someone or we denigrate someone because 
we think that we have a gift that they don't have. We are missing all the other gifts that they do bring to the table, if you will. And I think that's yeah. what's what's the most important thing. I don't I don't even um, I I perceive it a little bit in the way you express it. I do appreciate the the fact of don't don't compare yourself to people who have more than you because most of the time that's all physical and material anyway. And I and I don't even talk about um, the people who have less, if you will. What what I like to do is to take the approach of um, what can I learn from this person? Because um, they're different than me. Because I don't believe it, it really ought to be a more or less. I mean, look at Donald right. Trump. Donald Trump has lots of money. Um, Jeff Bezos has lots of money. But I bet that there are other gifts that we could talk about that they do not have. Oh. And and so the the issue is we all have gifts. And I think that the first thing we need to do is to learn to appreciate and and recognize the gifts that we bring to the world and then go from there. And all too often, uh, I think we underestimate ourselves and we underestimate our ability to learn more about ourselves. For example, um, one of the things I did when I was in college was I was the program director of a radio station, of the student radio station. You know, most, a lot of kids came and they wanted to be jocks. They wanted to be on the radio. They wanted to be disc jockeys. And they thought they could do a great job and they loved what they did. They got on and they did one thing and another. It was all super. Um, as program director, I said, I want everyone to listen to themselves. So we're going to ask you to record your shows. Don't care about the music, but we want you to record what you say, and we want, want you to listen to it. Um, oh, you can just imagine how much opposition to that we had, because people don't want to do it, and didn't want to do it. So we actually set it up so that the recordings were automatically made as soon as the microphone came on, and that uh, once the recordings were done, then our engineer, I think it was, took them and took each person's shows, put them on a cassette and said, now go listen to it. Um, people hated it. But you know what? The individuals who did that and who were able to then step back and listen to themselves and say, gee, I, I you know, didn't know I sounded like that. And how could I improve that? And learned to evolve. I can tell you that those people, by the end of the year that this program was in place, were much better on the radio than they were at the beginning. And some of them went on to professional careers in radio, by the way. But it, it is all about us recognizing the gifts that we have. You know, that's, it's um, a treasure and like the the few that can understand that and like I feel like um everyone is always trying to be someone else or they're you know like they have a mask on I always say like there's these social masks everyone puts on and instead of just trying to be something else or trying to like be something that is perceived as what's acceptable to the quote-unquote society's norm 
Mm-hmm. Just be yourself. You know, you, you're, you're dying to be a copy when you're original. You, there's something special about you and there's something that the whole world can learn from you that's only can be expressed by you. And, you know, uh, also often that we are so trying to talk to people and just tell everyone what we know and everything about us and like just say we just talk 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 but we always hear ourselves we we already know everything that we're going to say because it's in our head we don't know what the other person's going to say so the the moment we can step back and just listen and listen actively listen you know then we can truly learn something and then benefit from the human race i agree so like what with when you were starting your coaching and like mind like what were some of like you know uh other factors that like caused you to be like okay i think this is important and i i, I need to start this after september 11th um, and after appearing on larry king live people started asking me to come and speak and talk about the experiences that i went through on September 11th and what happened and they wanted to hear my story. And a lot of people thought it was very amazing, but a lot of people listened and I heard from people um, and, and continued to get speaking requests. And, and I've been speaking ever since. And I realized when we went into this pandemic and speaking physically stopped in terms of traveling somewhere to speak, that I needed to look at what I could do to contribute and and create an income. And it's only been very recently that we got to the point of saying, I think what I can do is to look at um, what, what happened to me and recognize that it really was all about controlling fear and overcoming fear. And it was all about recognizing that I had learned to do that. Can I help other people do that same thing? So as I said, we're setting up the the program and so on, but it's it's a natural outgrowth of having talked about it for 19 years. So, you know, with that coming into play and where we're at now, would you, you know, like you, you said it before, but you know, like you, we'll never go back to normal. But what do you think can be done in like a like it's in a scale wise? Like, you know, do you, do you think that these, you know, coaching sessions or my? I think that they'll all be important and they'll help. But the the problem really where I think really lies is the consistency of people not realizing that this is a day-to-day thing and that it needs to be implemented every day and it doesn't come like in the snap of a finger rather it takes time and it's i'm not sure how it can be done but maybe you know better or like just from teaching or coaching longer that how you can like integrate this in a person's like uh hardware well it goes back to the old elephant joke how do you eat an elephant it's one bite at a time right and and so 
it isn't one coaching session. It is uh, an opportunity to talk about and evolve. And uh, that's what we'll do is we'll give people either in groups or individually the opportunity <clears throat> to to talk about this subject. And for me, it's going to be a growth experience for me too. I've not done this particular thing before, but I've been talking about it and I've been somewhat of a teacher my whole life. I have a secondary teaching credential. This is all about teaching again, right? Yeah, but it's an evolutionary thing. And so I think that uh, the the best professors, the best teachers are not the ones who are necessarily experts in everything, but they are the ones who may only be one or two steps ahead of their students, but are willing to grow and learn and stay one or two steps ahead of their students and who get to the point where the student progresses beyond what the teacher can teach. And that's okay too. It is, it is all about establishing relationships and learning to do things better than we used to. And so I think it's going to be a process for all of us. And that's the way it should be. No, you're, you're correct. And, um, I think that's like an important factor, like, you know, being, uh, it's one thing to be able to learn something and understand it, but it's another thing to be able to reiterate that and teach it. That's the plan to do that or to try to do that and to learn what I need to know to be able to do it better. And I am excited about that opportunity. If you ever get a chance to read a book and, and if your listeners get a chance to read a book called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, Adventures of a Curious Fellow. It's kind of the memoirs of Richard Feynman, who was the famous, most famous physicist of the 20th century. And he writes early in his book about his father when they'd be out in a park or something like that and they'd see a bird fly. His father would say, well, how does that happen? Why does that bird fly? What, what is it that makes that bird able to fly? And he taught Dr. Feynman the value and the excitement of learning and curiosity. And over time, what Dr. Feynman also learned was how to impart that information in an exciting teaching way to other people. Now that, that's really cool and i've i was going to write off uh, whenever we're done with our call start thunderdog i'm going to start this one as well so i think that's that's really um strategic and it's the people who can do it it's really beautiful you know like to teach someone the like how to excite someone or spark that you know, drive or create excitement towards learning or understanding something. I, I had just like a quick question for the physicists in you, you know, like I, I always heard different uh, things and like kind of like uh, just like walking by about like quantum physics and stuff of that nature. I, I, I just always heard like, you know, people talk like, you know, like again with perception, like perception is a thing. And like, if you look at a, they said like an orange uh, apple long enough, it could be an orange or something along those lines. 
and uh, I, I was just curious to what what did they tr truly uh, mean by that statement? Well, I I think what they're what they're perhaps trying to say is you deal with something long enough, it will change, or maybe your perception changes. When you look at something um, and you say it's red, how do you know that everyone else thinks it's red? Um, do your eyes function the same way everyone else's? You could come up with all these incredible theories about what may look red to you, may look blue to someone else, but they've learned that most people call it red, so they're gonna call it red, even though in reality, their brain thinks of it as blue. I don't know that that necessarily happens, but the reality is that we, we all need to learn to um, observe what goes on around us and try to do our best to integrate what we see into the world. And again, that gets back to what I said before about it's all about stepping back and seeing what's really going on, not just what someone says is going on. It may very well be that what someone says is going on is, is right, but we should each step back and look at that as well, not to be pessimists and say, well, how do I know it's real, but rather to understand it and not look at what's going on and just rely on one person who says this is what's going on, but maybe look at what a number of people say is going on and why do their views differ? And it's appropriate to ask the question, why do their views differ? It's really a matter of stepping back in ourselves and looking what goes on around us. And the more of that we can do, the better off we'll all be. No, you're 100% you're correct. And um, just being able to like step back, like you said, and um, digest and actively like digest everything and then be able to take that and then go from there is uh, something that will, I think, hopefully come over time. And I just want to say thanks again, or just like, you know, um, like, so to say, praise you in everything that you've done so far and you continue to do, because if it was not for people like you, there would not be any true changes or anything done along those lines, because I'm sure, Michael, like with everything you've done, you've created or sort of created more awareness in uh, for the blind community and uh, you know we're able to make changes and help make allocate things to be more efficient for you correct well I, I hope it goes far beyond blindness and you know no, I, no, no, I'm just saying but, just, I, but uh, I think I think that we have a lot of opportunity now in in our world the, the pandemic um, can be viewed as just as much an opportunity as anything else. And I'm excited about trying to be able to and, and expecting to be able to be a contributor in, in, in making it a better world, um, both for blind people and for, for others as well. I think that the opportunities are there and I think it's exciting to be able to, to take advantage of, 
um, making some of those opportunities come to reality. And your podcast is is a part of that. And I really appreciate you having us on and that you're you're going to put this up. Um, once you get it all edited and all the things that you have to do with it, I'm really excited about uh, what you're doing. And I thank you as well for for the opportunities that you're creating. No, it, the what it was for me, just so I, I you know, I kept hearing all about you. I couldn't even uh, tell you the reason why I started this uh, podcast or, you know, just I, I had lived in Chicago and then I spent some time as well in, in Jersey and uh, near Piscataway. And then, wow. um, and then I was also in uh, Los Angeles, but from the, from growing up in the nineties and two thousands and now I didn't, really have much and being first generation you know uh, my family's from uh, Morocco and Sri Lanka so um, just having that and uh, them not being able to understand what it's like you know life in America they want you to study and things but going through everything and not having anywhere to turn to or like anyone to trust I felt like it was important to kind of create some memoirs or something for future generations that they could listen to. And when they listen to them, like, Hey, I'm going through that right now. And then they could understand and then they could go and make better decisions and not fall in the same mistakes that I have made or anyone has made. And that's as good as it gets. That's cool. So um, I just wanted to ask another thing. You know, you said that um, after this, not, what happened, you were on, you know, Larry King Live and as well as other publics, you had to do a lot more public speaking. Now, were you always just um, comfortable with that or did that progress over time? I suppose that started with having to do spelling tests out loud in front of the class. But I've always been pretty comfortable. In fact, the after September 11th and after Larry King Live and then the media got the story, the first time I was invited to speak somewhere, we were living in Westfield, by the way, since you were in Piscataway. We were straight out Route 22 from Newark. Um, the, first oh, I know talk, exactly. the first talk I was asked to uh, give and be involved with was that a pastor from a church down in sort of central Jersey it called me and said that he wanted me to tell my story at an event that they were going to be creating to honor all of the people who were lost in New Jersey on September 11th. And I said, well, okay, I'm, I'm glad to come and do it. it. Wasn't a paid speaking event. That's okay. Um, it was like two weeks afterward, I think it was on the, oh, it would have been um, the, about the 25th of September, I believe it was like two weeks later. Anyway, um, I happened to ask, do you have any idea how many people are going to come? And he said, well, I'm not sure, but we probably expect between five and 6,000. And I went, okay. And you know, I went to it, my wife and I went, and I had opportunities to meet some other folks uh, while there who also spoke, Lisa Beamer, Todd Beamer, her husband was on flight 93. He's the guy who said, let's roll when they took over that plane. And of course it crashed, but still um, that was, was her story. 
but it didn't bother me that it was 6,000 people. And I thought about it afterwards. I went, well, I'm certainly seeing this. If I can speak to that number of people, I can speak wherever. Uh, but I take every event seriously. I've had speaking events where there were two people and everyone is just as important. So I think it's it's fun. And if I can inspire people, excuse me, if I can inspire people and motivate people and if I can give them some information that will be of help, I think that's great because I know that every time I speak, I'm going to learn things from other people. It's a two-way street, and that's the way it should be. No, you're, it, it, it should be like that. And uh, I would like to, um, you know, maybe have you again on the show after you have launched your uh, coaching and everything just to get into that. But sure. um, as we come closer to the end, I always ask the guest speaker, has there been uh, a quote just recently maybe you heard or like came across randomly that's been coming up or a quote maybe your whole life that's always like been internalized that you would like to share and we could end on that? Well, I'm, I'm going to stick with what I talked about earlier, and that is that I hope that people will recognize don't worry about what you cannot control. Focus on what you can and the rest will take care of itself. If people really take that to heart and not worry about all the things that they don't have influence over and focus on the things that they can and, and learn to compartmentalize because um, all that stuff you can't control, you're still going to hear about it, but you can compartmentalize it and step back from it some if you choose to learn to do that. If, if people learn to do that, life, I guarantee you, will be a whole lot better. Um, and you'll discover that your normal will exist wherever you are. And I think that that's important. Your normal exists, right? Your normal ex will exist wherever you are. And um, your normal will be the things that you do have control over in your life. And most of what you control in your life is what you think. I couldn't control what happened on September 11th, but I certainly can control how I think about what happened and how I feel about what happened on September 11th and how I move on from what happened on September 11th. And the same is true with the pandemic. So again, if you could just, um, it say that one more time just so everyone can like digest that it's not so much what's happening to you it's how you perceive what's happening to you how you deal with it so don't worry about what you cannot control focus on what you can and let the rest take care of itself all right thanks again michael and then uh if you can how can anyone reach out to sure. you sure Sure. So people can, and I invite people to go to my website, www.michaelhingson.com. That's www.michaelhingson.com. If people want to email, they're welcome to do that. Send an email to contact, C-O-N-C-A-T, CT, C-O-N-C-A-C-T, at michaelhingson.com. Contact at michaelhingson.com. Uh, and um, I, I love to, to talk with people. If someone wants to 
talk to me about speaking at an event, they can reach me at contact at michaelhingson.com and we'll deal with that. And, and I will respond to any emails that I get. Um, I hope people will get Thunderdog and, and, and read that as well as in addition to another book we wrote for kids more called Running with Roselle, which talks more about my life growing up. And it talks about um, Roselle, my guide dog back here, growing up and, and how we met and the things that we learned together. Uh, the reality is more adults buy it than kids. So I guess it's, it works out pretty well. So both Running with Roselle and of course, Thunderdog. But yeah, again, people can reach me at Mike at michaelhingson or rather contact at michaelhingson.com or www.michaelhingson.com. Okay, thanks again, Michael. I, as soon as I get off, oh, just one last. Uh, what was the the book of Dr. Feynman? Dr. Feynman. Yeah. Um, it's called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. F-E-Y-N-M-A-N. Adventures of a Curious Fellow. Okay. Great book. I'm going to look into both, but I'm going to start with Thunderdog. Dr. Feynman was not only a great physicist, but he was an incredible teacher. Um, he had a great sense of humor, but he learned how to communicate, and that's that's what made him so good around other people. I had the opportunity to meet him when he came to UC Irvine once, and um, he's he's clearly was a a wonderful teacher and, and understood the value of it. But thank you again for, for having us. Again, www.michaelhingson.com. Contact at michaelhingson.com. People are welcome to email. And um, I really appreciate you having us on. It's been an honor for me. No, uh, it's been a huge honor. And we can't thank you enough. And um, all the knowledge plus insight will be everlasting beneficial for years to come. I know it. And um, we'll be in touch. And then let me know again about the Dropbox. Thank you. Well, I thought I did.